Welcome to Culture Crux. It's so good to have you tuning in to another episode where our goal is to equip you to be an effective evangelistic minister of the gospel in your relational community, the people who come across your path, whether it's your coworkers, the people in your house, your neighbors, your friends. You are a representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And gospel, as we know, means good news. The bad news is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but there's the good news, which says, through Christ Jesus, we have an opportunity to be forgiven and made new, and that slate is wiped clean. Not because we're a good person, there's nothing that we can do that's good enough to wipe that slate clean, but Jesus was good enough, and his shed blood paid the price in full for the sin of the world, and all you have to do is accept that gift that God extends to humanity to mend that broken relationship between his creation and and a holy God. So as ministers of the gospel, I'm speaking to people in lay leadership. I'm speaking to people who are pastors vocationally. I'm speaking to people who are, um, you know, for lack of a better term, just attendees of a church. But see that, don't diminish the way you see yourself. You're not just an attendee of a church. You're a child of the king. You've been adopted into his family, and you are a co-heir with Christ Jesus himself of the eternal reward that God is offering to his children who accept that offer of adoption into sonship and, and, and to be a child of the king. One of the greatest barriers, if you've listened to a few of these episodes, is hypocrisy. When we go out into the world and and we share this good news of Jesus and what he's done in your heart and your life, one of the biggest barriers is when people see high-profile pastors or other people who make claims to be a believer, and then they have a fall from grace. They do something stupid. They make a sinful choice. Their language and their actions outside of the walls of the church reflect something completely different. They don't have integrity through and through. And I'm not just pointing the finger at other people. This is a place that I was in in life. I lived a double life for a while. And I don't, I don't want to get into all the details of what built me up to that point. I'm just going to own the fact that while I was claiming to be a Christian, I was living a life that did not honor God. It's kind of like when Jesus was saying, you know, they, they honor God with their lips, but their hearts, and I'm paraphrasing, are vile. You know, he, he, when he had encounters with the Pharisees and they were so public with their relig- rel- religiosity, you know, their hearts weren't pure. Everything was about the external and the way people would view them. And then they put this heavy burden of religiosity on, on the shoulders of the people. But Jesus said, come to me if you're weary and, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you because I'm gentle and it's an easy yoke. In Matthew 6, 5, Jesus is talking specifically about hypocrites. And that was mostly the religious leaders of the day. He says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. 
He tells you what you should do when you pray. This, this isn't every single time you pray, but talking about a heart motive. He says in verse six, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans for they think they will be heard because they're many words. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then he gives a model of prayer, the Lord's prayer as we call it. And this is all about that heart check. Is your intention with the religious system that you adhere to or the religiosity that you live out in your life, is the whole point maybe to post something on social media about it? Hey, I'm a Christian. Look at how I prayed for these people. Hey, check out this video of how I served at the soup kitchen. I want to stand up in front of the church and tell them about my missions trip and tell them about all the danger I faced for the sake of the gospel. Hey, check me out. I'm a really cool guy. Now, there's a fine line here. If you are sharing what you've done in the mission field for the purpose of encouraging people to pray and to support that ministry and to show that you're doing something that is effective for the gospel, that's one thing. And only you know the motives of your heart. But if you're standing up there and the whole point is, look at me and pat me on the back and clap for me, that's a whole different thing. And you've already got your reward when you're standing up in front of the people with that motive. But getting back to prayer and integrity and hypocrisy, the life that I led for a while was incredibly destructive. And there were some things in the past, a lot of loss that I hadn't dealt with, a lot of wounds and deep scars in my heart that had shaped the way that I interacted with other people. But again, that's not to justify my actions. There was a time in my life where, um, well, see, when I met my wife, I was, I was 16 and she was 15. We were in high school and I had so much loss and betrayal and hurt when I met her that I really could have used two or three years of solid counseling and therapy to work out my issues and uh, prayerfully have God peel away the calluses that I'd built around my heart for relationships and intimacy and, and trust and vulnerability with other people. She also came from a, a very hurt uh, and damaged family life. And somehow I had this idea in my head when we jump into marriage, everything is going to be great. You know, it'll just fix everything because we're now married. But the truth was, I was a sinful, flawed human being who needed help, and I didn't get that help. And so I brought into the marriage this hidden but damaged inner self. So that in and of itself was an act of hypocrisy because the person I was presenting to her as a Christian young man, it was flawed. I wasn't able to share with her all of the scars and hurts. And so in the back of my mind, when we got married, at, I was 19, she was 18, I had in the back of my mind at some point in the very near future, I'm going to lose her or she's going to betray me because this is the pattern that I had experienced in my early years of life. So in the back of my mind, when, when I took those vows, that covenant of marriage, I had plan B and plan C in the back of my mind. When this doesn't work out, I'm going to do this. Or when she betrays me, I'm going to follow this path. That's just the way I walked into the marriage. And so over time, I began to exhibit behaviors that were absolutely inappropriate for a married man, especially a Christian married man who calls Jesus Lord. I 
had relationships with other females outside of the marriage. And when it came to a head several years later, um, I just dumped everything on her in a counselor's office. And I said, here's what I've done. Here's what I'm currently doing. There you go. And I expected, I expected her to say some pretty foul things to me. I expected her to probably throw some things at me. I definitely was ready for her to kick me out, but I wasn't ready for the words that she spoke. She looked me in the eye. I could see the pain, but she said, I forgive you and let's work through this. I was really taken aback. I said, you can't forgive me. You can't. People cannot forgive someone who just dumped all this trash on your lap. You can't do that. But see, she had integrity with Christ at the center of her heart. I had removed Christ from the throne of my heart, and I'd put myself there out of self-preservation and uh, just human flesh. And this whole idea that I could control my own destiny and I was going to protect myself from future hurt. And by doing so, I destroyed my marriage. I even filed for divorce. And so I've, I've written a, a book about this. It's called The Blog of a Forgiven Cheater, A Journey from Brokenness to Restoration. And what happened was after she said, I forgive you. And, you know, I'm going to share one more thing with you before I go on about that. Before I had torn up the divorce papers, I was treating God like a vending machine of grace. I didn't, I didn't have a relationship with him as my heavenly father. Instead, I looked at him as Pastor Ty's even said, you know, are you treating God like a genie? You know, you rub the Bible like a magic lamp and you get three wishes. I was thinking of the parable of the, uh, the wayward son, you know, the prodigal son, and I was proof texting that passage and applying it to my life. I'm going to keep living this destructive life. And as soon as I'm done with this and I have a new wife and a new life, then God will just, uh, almost like a, you know, a puppy who loves its owner, regardless of what the owner does, he's going to sit on the porch and wait for me to come home and he's going to come running to me and he's going to forgive me. How stupid was I? How foolish was that line of thinking? I was making willful, sinful, destructive choices in my life and expecting God to just sit there and wait for me. It wasn't like I was making mistakes. I was making intentional decisions that were destructive and sinful. So I was driving home and I was coming up to this split in the freeway. This was in Los Angeles. And I felt the presence of this voice. It wasn't audible, like you can hear my voice right now, but I felt the presence of this voice and the words pierced my soul. You can either choose me now or you can choose destruction and I will give you over to the hardness of your heart. And I, the weight the weight on my convictions and my heart and my soul was overwhelming. I was like, God, I cannot choose restoration in this situation. I've damaged it too much. It's going to be way too hard. 
but I also didn't want my heart to be hardened. And I didn't want God to give me over to that. You know, no matter where you are in your faith, whether you you believe there's a God or whether you don't, God wants to give you the desires of your heart, but see, he also wants you to make him the desire of your heart. That's, that's, that's what he wants. You know, think about an atheist who chooses willfully to reject God. So, you know what? I've heard the story. I've heard about Jesus. I've heard about how he loves me. I've heard about how he died for me and he paid the price for my sin. I reject that. I do not want that. Think about the hell it would be for God to take that person and force them into an eternity with him. God wants to give you the desires of your heart, but he, he wants to be the desire of your heart. So when I, I felt those words, the presence of God telling me to choose, or he would give me over to the, the hardness of my heart, I chose to just give it all up. And I was like, you know, God, I, I don't know how to do this. I can't mend my heart. I can't mend my marriage, but I'll, I'll be obedient. Forgive me. And I went home and I tore up the divorce papers and we started that difficult journey to restoration. Quite a few months later, through the process of, of rebuilding trust and vulnerability and dealing with the past hurts that I'd never examined before, that, that made me into the person I was, I began writing a blog just to document the journey. It was kind of self-therapy in a sense. And I called the blog, the blog of a forgiven cheater. And the first year I would post sometimes three or four times a month. The second year, I maybe posted a couple times per month. The third year, it was like one to two times per month. The fourth year, there were about four or five entries. The fifth year, there were only about two entries total because we had come so far and God had healed and restored so much of what I'd broken. There just wasn't the need to keep articulating the journey. So fast forward many years later, when I'm, I'm in serving in ministry, there are people who come into my office for counseling and they'll say things like, our marriage is, is, is doomed. It's falling apart. My, my spouse has been unfaithful. There's no way we can fix this. What, what do we do? And then I say, well, you're in the right place. Let me tell you my story. And I'll refer people to the blog. But um, a good friend and mentor, uh, Dr. Tim Rupp, who uh, runs the Strong Blue Line Ministries here on staff, when he told me his experience trying to read the blog, he said, it's, it's distracting. There's pop-up ads. It's just you can't get to the content. So he helped put the book or, or put the blog into book form. And so it's called The Blog of a Forgiven Cheater. A Journey from Brokenness to Restoration. And I sent this out to a few people. I even got some endorsements from Josh McDowell, Steve Ardeburn, who, who wrote the Every Man series, uh, a few other people. And it's now in this, this practical, hands-on resource that you can take home. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it in you know, book form. But I just wanted to read one chapter to you. These chapters are very short, by the way. It was a blog. But I wanted to read a chapter to you it's, it's called Stop Praying For Me. And the reason I want to share this with you is because prayer is effective. We're called as believers to pray for others. We're called to pray without ceasing. But what does your prayer, look, prayer life look like? 
Are you one of those people who really wants the attention and you stand up like the hypocrites like Jesus was talking about? Or do you genuinely want an effective prayer life, which really is just communication with God? He communicates to you so many ways. He speaks to your heart. The Holy Spirit ministers to you. You can, you can see aspects of God in his creation. We've got the 66 canonized books of scripture, God's revealed word to humanity to give us instructions. And how do you talk to God? How do you commune with God? It says in scripture that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to be alone with the Father. His prayer life was active. So I want to share with you this chapter, Stop Praying for Me. Friday, February 27th. When I was in the midst of my rebellion and sin, my heart began to harden. I couldn't pray anymore. I loathed going to church. I hated putting on the phony smile around my Christian friends. I didn't even want to touch my Bible. I felt annoyed when Christian music was being played. I chose to listen strictly to mainstream music since it fed my mood of discontent. Each of these things in and of themselves are not innately wrong per se. However, for me at that point in time, it was all of them at every waking moment. I don't even remember all the cruel and heartless things I said to my wife, but my family agrees that I was definitely not my normal self. I felt a palpable darkness looming over me, a heavy weight bearing down on my shoulders. My wife and my children prayed for me all the time, so much so that I remember feeling extremely annoyed with it. Every single meal I had to listen to, Dear God, please bless this food and please help my daddy to love my mommy again. Help him to change. The prayers at bedtime were similar in nature. When I would lie down in bed every night, I listened to my wife tearfully praying for me and pleading with God to soften my heart and bring about a change. I actually asked them to stop praying for me. I told them that they could pray however they wanted to when I wasn't around, but I didn't want to hear it anymore. I honestly did not believe that prayer would change a single thing. Around that time, there was a men's encounter scheduled with our church. I did not want to attend. Interestingly enough, I had wanted to attend previous men's encounters, but logistically it never worked out. This time, there was nothing stopping me or getting in the way aside from myself. My wife pleaded with me to attend. Several men in the church overly encouraged me to attend. I reluctantly agreed and probably thought I'd find some temporary solace from the overabundance of prayers on the home front. That weekend was more than an encounter with God. That weekend was a divinely planned moment of breakthrough. I was completely broken before the throne of grace. I remember praying, pleading, begging God to soften my heart. I asked him to not allow the hardness of my heart to continue. Fast forward to the present day, I am blown away at how far I'd strayed. I hang my head and I shake it in disgust and shame at the non-man I'd allowed myself to become. I am a living example of the power of prayer and how it can truly change someone's life. If you know someone who needs Jesus, whether a non-believer or a believer who's strayed, pray, 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 and then continue to pray. James 5.16 says, pray for each other so that you may be healed 
the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. A heartfelt and sincere thanks is given to my dear wife and to my boys for lifting me up in prayer. So as you go about your call to relational evangelism in your ministry context, whatever that looks like, bathe every word, every thought in prayer. God bless you. We'll see you next time. Thank you.